We're working our way through the pastoral epistles. We are in 2 Timothy, which is the last letter written by Paul the Apostle. And we have come to chapter 4, the first eight verses. 2 Timothy chapter 4, the first eight verses. Paul is in prison, probably the Mamertine prison, one of the worst in Rome, as he writes to Timothy, passing on the good deposit, expecting him to be faithful and also to help others who are faithful to pass on the word all the way down to you in this congregation today. Let's pray before reading. Our Father, as we come to this text, we pray that you will help us to understand its meaning. We ask that the sermon will indwell the text, actually expound the text before us, for the authority is in your word. And we pray that the blessed Holy Spirit, just as we have sung, will take the word deep down into our hearts. There may be lost ones among us today, undoubtedly there are, who need Jesus, and we pray that as your church is instructed, they will hear truth that the Holy Spirit will take to their hearts, regenerating them and granting them saving faith in Christ. And we pray that your people will be built up in the most holy faith. We ask these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. 2 Timothy 4, beginning with verse 1, this is the word of God. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. God had only one son, and he made him a preacher. In the wake of that astounding remark of the Puritan Thomas Goodwin, I've always been amazed at the call that God has placed upon my life to preach his word. It is a solemn calling, and so Paul addresses young Timothy, it could be translated, I solemnly charge you. Did it occur to you as we were reading this passage that these were among the last words of Paul the Apostle? that he might have been days or perhaps even hours from death when he wrote these words to Timothy. And what's on his mind? The preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word, the passing on of faith. And his final concern is to charge young Timothy, this young protege, this young preacher. And the first thing I ask you to note about the charge, this is first, 
is the solemnity of the charge. Verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Dia marturamai, one of the great uh, lexicons says, a solemn, emphatic utterance. And so it could be translated, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. We hardly know what solemnity is anymore. Everything has become so incredibly casual. Everything is light, but not here. It's a requirement that is a burden. A delight, but a burden. God, Christ, the judgment, the appearing of Christ, the consummated kingdom, these are the things that are to weigh upon this young man, Timothy, in this charge to preach the word. These eternal realities should determine Timothy's ministry and the ministry of every minister and also should determine your living, by the way. Are these the realities that are on your mind and on your heart most often? Do these grip your soul? Do these these things determine how you think, how you feel, how you live? Do these things determine your will? God, Christ, the judgment, the appearing of Christ, the consummated kingdom. Well, that's the solemnity of the charge. Second thing, let's look at the charge itself. It's found in verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Keruksan tan lagan. Preach the word. It's an aorist imperative. In other words, it's command. All through this passage, by the way, we find commands. I know Christians today who think that because we're saved by grace alone, which is true, that there's no place for command and no place for a call to obedience. That's not true. Grace calls for obedience. And all through this passage, command after command after command given by divine inspiration to this young man, Timothy. Preach the word. Preach this body of doctrine you've learned from Paul. Preach the deposit, as it is called in chapter 1. Preach. The word here is from the word that means a herald, a kerux, a herald. A minister is a herald, a public proclaimer. Now, heralds do not announce their own message. Heralds announce the message of the one who sent them. A herald of the king announces the message of the king. And what is that message? Well, in verse 16 of the prior chapter, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Acts chapter 20, the whole counsel of God. And so, you young herald, Timothy, I solemnly charge you in light of these eternal verities that you be a herald of these eternal truths. And I'm calling upon you to be always ready. So he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. The word be ready means to stand by. It's a word that expresses eagerness. It expresses urgency. Life, death, the cross, the resurrection, the judgment. It's a travesty to preach without urgency. The word of God. And so he says to young Timothy, I want you to be 
standing by urgently to herald the word, to proclaim the word, and always be ready in every circumstance to do so, in season and out of season. Is the time opportune? Then preach the word. Those are delightful times. Is the time inopportune? Then preach the word. Those times might not be delightful. As a matter of fact, it will bring with it great suffering because faithfulness and hardship always go together. Now let me just say, this is a down time. This is not a time in the church in America in which faithful, expository, sound, solemn, serious preaching is delighted in in most quarters. It's just not. There have been great times for that in the church. The Protestant Reformation, great times such as the Great Awakening. There have been times, even in our own culture, in which we've seen it at various times in history. This is not one of those times. What do you do? Well, you just do what the Bible says. You continue to do what he calls the minister to do. And how are you to do it? Well, notice that he says here in verse 2 that you are to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now, I'm going to say a few things about each of those, but what do you notice first about those? Reprove, rebuke, exhort. The first thing you notice is that two of them are what we would think of as negative. In, the, in, in this day in which we think of the Christian life as always up, everything is happy, uh, worship should never reflect lament, as we think of the, 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 the way in which people think about the Christian life today, two of the commands given to Timothy are negative. Reprove, rebuke. Reprove is an aorist imperative. Rebuke is an aorist imperative. Exhort is an aorist imperative. They're commands. He doesn't have a choice if he's going to be faithful to do this. Why the negatives? Because preaching that never confronts, preaching that never hurts, preaching that never addresses the conscience, preaching that never points out sin rarely helps anybody. Because we're sinners and we need to be reproved and rebuked as believers in Jesus. Reprove means to point out sin and error, what is contrary to the Word of God. Rebuke means to censure, sharp rebuke, because we need to see our need. And exhort means to urge and to admonish. And he says to him in verse 2, do that with all longsuffering and teaching. Now the teaching here means doctrine. Do that with all longsuffering and doctrine. Clearly teach and patiently wait for the results. Because patience shows that we believe that it is the Holy Spirit who does the work in the heart after all. We must be urgent, we must be earnest, but we must also not manipulate. With complete patience and teaching or doctrine, what one teaches, the doctrine. Because the Christian ministry is a teaching ministry. So that when you walk in, you should expect to be taught from the Word of God. A text expounded. You should expect to have to apply your mind. The Christian ministry is a teaching ministry and it is painstaking. One minister said to another, and this is not made up, this is something that really happened. One minister said to another, I found that when people grow in wanting to know the Lord, they become less interested in doctrine. My response is, when they are less interested in doctrine, they have only a vague idea of who the Lord is they are called to love. The third thing we see as we move in the text is the context of this solemn charge. The context of the charge. 
And the context is given in verses 3 and 4. Let's read these verses again. For the time is coming, says Paul, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So this solemn charge to preach truth comes as Paul looks at the development of the ages and he says the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. Sound, or the word could be translated healthy. People won't endure it. They cannot stand to hear the truth. Now folks, we're there. Uh, People can't stand to hear the truth. They don't want to hear sound doctrine. They reject it. They refuse it. Why? Because they love their sin. That was true of me. It was true of you before you came to know the Lord. But unhappily it's true also, I'm afraid, of many an ill-taught Christian. And people, he says, will have itching ears. The time is coming when people will not endure teaching, but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Or as Bishop Ellicott says, they have an itch for novelty. That's where the church is today. And they accumulate teachers who will suit their own passions, says Paul. Rejecting sound doctrine, they will not endure sound preachers, but they will accumulate teachers that will stroke their passions. And this they substitute for the preaching of the whole counsel of God. To accumulate teachers may indicate a succession of such ministers, one after another. Or perhaps it means going from one to another to hear what you want to hear. Vincent in his word studies is quoted by Kent. This is what he says. In periods of unsettled faith, skepticism, and mere curious speculation in matters of religion, teachers of all kinds swarm like flies in Egypt. The demand creates the supply. The hearers invite and shape their own preachers. If the people desire a call to worship, a ministerial calf maker is readily found. And he says people will refuse to listen. Verse 4, will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. They'll refuse to listen. Then what? Refusing God's word, they invent substitutes. They invent myths. A deliberate turning away, a turning aside from the truth. In Paul's day, it was Jewish Gnostic myth. He's opposing that all through the pastoral epistles in Colossians and other places. In our day, everything from evolution to wrong views of the atonement to false views of Scripture, people are just coming up with their own ideas and their own myths. Minister's call is to expound the text, to expound the word, not his own ideas. And if this, in this context, the call of the faithful minister is found here in verse 5 as for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let's look at that verse. He says, To the young Timothy, I want you to be sober in all things. It's really. Um, it's a, again an imperative. It's a present active imperative. It's uh, be sober-minded. Nefah. It means um, well. It's a wine metaphor. Stay sober when people are drunk on false teaching. And then he said, suffer hardship. People don't want to listen, and that's going to be hard. Be sober-minded. Endure suffering. 
And the greatest suffering for the minister is people who don't want to hear the truth. Paul will not be on the scene. Timothy must take up the mantle, and he's going to suffer as he continues to preach the truth that Paul has taught him to preach. John Stott says, whenever the biblical faith becomes unpopular, ministers are sorely tempted to mute those elements which give most offense. But again, I remind you, preaching that never offends anybody rarely helps anybody. So he's to be sober in all things, suffer hardship, do the work of an evangelist. Now, there was a special office of evangelist, it seems, in the New Testament era. I don't think that's what it means. I think he's saying to Timothy, in the context of your regular pastoral labor, proclaim redemption from sin, the good news of the gospel. The goal is to remember as a minister that your, your life, your whole life's work is to preach the gospel, the evangel the truth about Jesus. And then he just summarizes by saying, fulfill your ministry. Carry it out fully, not half-heartedly. Again, John Stott, the harder the times and the deafer the people, the clearer and more persuasive our proclamation must be. But having given to the young man, this young preacher, this solemn charge... Timothy is now turned to Paul himself. And the fourth thing I want you to see is the encouragement of Paul. That is to say, the encouragement of his life, the encouragement of his ministry. And that's found in verses 6 through 8. Let's read these verses again, may we? For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who love his appearing. So here Paul calls Timothy to faithfulness as Paul himself is about to die. Tradition tells us that he was beheaded, and that's probably what happened. He himself has been faithful right up to the end. And I cannot stress too much the encouragement of faithful ministers to a younger minister in his work. You know, I've had a lot of ministers invest themselves in me. When I was a young man, Jay Adams was my mentor. Later, it was Sinclair Ferguson. And I could name others. It has meant an immense, it's just, just incredible to me how encouraged I've been by the ministries of other faithful men. So on the heels of this charge to Timothy, Paul stresses two things about himself for Timothy's benefit. The first is, Paul says, I'm ready. Paul's readiness. He says, my life is like a drink offering. You wonder why we read that passage from Numbers this morning? That's why. It was about the drink offering. Paul is bringing that to mind. This drink offering that was poured out before the Lord in worship, it's a liturgical word. It's a word about worship. His life and his death, this is an act of worship. Paul's life is poured out like a drink offering. If you were in prison, would you call this languishing in prison an act of worship? Paul did. A sacrifice to God that he was willing to give. And he says, the time of my departure has arrived. Uh, The word that we find here is the word from which we derive our term analysis. 
And it's a word that probably in Paul's day still brought with it some, some metaphor. It was a word that would have been used of loosing tent stakes or of loosing moorings before the boat is let, let go. And so Paul is bringing to mind some possible word pictures and he's saying I'm right at the point where the moorings of my life like a boat are going to be loosed I'm going off. The, the tent stakes of my life are, are being taken up. I'm about ready to die. And looking back, I can say to you, Timothy, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. I have believed the faith. I have preached the faith. I have defended the faith. I've held fast to the faith. I've passed it on to others. Will you pray that I can finish well, people of God? That Jeff will finish well, that Christopher will finish well, that your ministers will finish well. I want to be able to look at my wife on my deathbed and say, Honey, have I finished well? Homer Kent says, How great is the tragedy when Christians and particularly ministers become disqualified in old age. That is a tragedy, isn't it? But Paul was not disqualified. He kept the faith. He was faithful to the good deposit, the sound doctrine, the truth. Then he says, there's something else I think will be for your benefit. Not only is that true of me, I'm ready. I'm ready to go whenever God calls me. And you have to live that way too, Timothy. But I also want you to to know that I'm full of hope. So he says in verse 8, look at it again. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's this crown of righteousness, Timothy. It's laid up for me, probably meaning uh, an entering into the perfect state of righteousness upon death. The garland is already laid up for Paul and will be awarded to all who love Christ's appearing. It's a gift that God will give on the basis of Jesus' blood and righteousness to all who have loved. It's a perfect tense pointing to a continual characteristic of life. All through my life I have loved, and you also should be those who have loved His appearing. The return of Christ. Almost certainly Paul is contrasting what the human judge Nero will do to him with what God his father judge will do for him when he dies. The world wants to destroy Paul and does. God has promised a crown of righteousness for Paul. And I'm looking to that day when Jesus is coming, and that's always before me. And that's my great incentive as I minister the Word of God, says the Apostle to this young man, Timothy. And that should be your incentive as well. Do you long for that day? Is this your great incentive as well? Now, I think that expounds the text. What I want to do now is to think back over the passage and pull out a few bullet points bring some things into focus for us. The first thing is that I think it's important for the minister, but also for the church to remember that the minister's calling is to preach the Word. It's not just to to put a survey out there to find out what people in the community want. It is actually to confront the spirit of the age with the truth as it is in Jesus. And to bring the only word of hope that can save, and that is the word of Christ Jesus, the Redeemer. So his solemn calling is, you, 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 you need to understand 
You're going to be pulled in all kinds of directions. People are going to tell you to do all kinds of things. But once you have lost sight of preparing to preach and preaching the Word, you've lost sight of the whole purpose of your ministry. The people say, you really don't want to do Bible exposition. Unbelievers won't understand that. Well, we could turn to many passages of Scripture, John 8, for example, but let's just read one verse. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, yeah, you know it, but turn to it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person, he says, the man outside of Christ, the person who doesn't know Jesus, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So I'm supposed to trim my ministry to people that can't understand the truth? I'm supposed to establish worship services for people that don't understand the truth? Is that what I'm supposed to do? No. I cannot allow the unbeliever to determine my calling. As we are faithful to feed the flock, many will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ who do not know Him because of the work of the Holy Spirit giving to them saving faith and understanding. But the minister is called to feed and protect the flock of God. And once you have forgotten to feed and protect the flock, you have forgotten your very purpose of existence as a minister of the gospel. Second thing, I think it's extremely important for us to remember that the day will come when men will resist sound doctrine. They won't tolerate it. Already we're seeing churches, I'm putting that in quote, just filled with people. I'll just name a name, Joel Osteen, all right? He doesn't preach the gospel, doesn't open the Bible, doesn't preach the truth, and people love it. So the day will come when men will resist sound doctrine, and I'm afraid that's true even to a certain extent of believers, ill-taught believers. But understand, opposition to the truth is not just an academic matter. The Scripture teaches that opposition to the truth is moral and sinful and satanic. And so, folks, you need to love the truth. So I can't allow that to determine my calling. You know, sanctification is about the mind. Romans 12, it's about the renewing of the mind. My wife gave me a CD by John MacArthur. Right on. Right on. He said to his people, he said, you can sway back and forth all day long until you're purple, but it won't sanctify you. Well, what will sanctify you? Getting this word in your mind. So that the word of God is taken way down deep and transforms your will and your affections. Let me tell you what I really want for my people. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 19... Paul says to the Galatians,
Galatians 4.19, Paul says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's what a minister wants for his flock. He's in anguish, like a mother in childbirth, until Christ is formed in his people. So we should want our church to be an absolute bastion of biblical doctrine. Third thing, if the minister is called to preach the word, then you are called to come with a certain kind of attitude to hear the word. That just makes sense, doesn't it? Thomas Watson the Puritan said, Dreadful is the case of those who are loaded with sermons to hell. So how you hear the word, do you have, to use his language again, a holy appetite for it? Do you have a teachable heart? Are you attentive, meek? Do you receive it in faith? Do you retain it, pray over it, practice it, and tell it out to other people? But then the fourth thing, and the last is the importance, according to this text and so many others in the Bible, the importance of the return of Jesus Christ and the importance of getting that truth into our minds so that it controls how we live. Notice verse 8 again. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's you and that's me. In verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and his appearing and his kingdom. So twice in eight verses he references the return of Christ. Twice. So if our gaze is there, then what can deflect us? What can turn us aside? Matthew 25, 13, watch therefore for you know neither the day nor the hour. We're called to watch. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. He's talking about the return of Christ. Titus 2, 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the great appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9, 28, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. We are to watch, we are to wait, we are to be eager for the coming of Jesus Christ. Whether it happens in your lifetime is not the point. Every generation of Christians should live as if it could happen in our generation. Love for Christ's return is a mark of Christ's people. And only if you love Christ's return... Will your mind be so completely engulfed in these truths that it will keep you from being deflected from all that would pull you away from the truth? And only if you love Christ's first coming and by faith trust in Him will you love Christ's return. But when you do, when you really do love the truth of Christ's return, it will profoundly affect your will and your choices now. 
So the hope of Christ's coming is the voice of divine love that pierces eternity into time and says to you, yes, my children, you suffer now. Yes, you may be a little flock now, but let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So the time is coming, says Paul, and my heart is really fixed on it, that Jesus Christ will pierce the sky, return for his people. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise. Jesus is coming again. Let it lead you to faithfulness, to godliness to depth, to substance, to perseverance. And so, people of God, hear the word. Lift high the cross, live for eternity, and look for his coming. And Christ's people said, Amen. Amen.